1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if, you, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for, God, for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learned to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying, what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we read Ruth a little bit earlier, it is amazing to me to think that Jesus or that Paul read the same Old Testament scriptures, that they opened up the scriptures to Ruth and they read about Ruth, that Jesus said, ah, here's the story about my great, great, great grandma. Let me read that again. Their teaching, their conduct, their theology was based on the words of the Old Testament in light of the work of Christ, the work of the Messiah being fulfilled, being its fulfillment. However, in that, there is one difference that you may not be aware of. Not in the text itself, that's been preserved well by the Holy Spirit and translated uh, well as well by our translators into English. But there's a difference in the order of the books of the Old Testament. When Jesus opened up the Old Testament, when they were uh, talking about the, the Jewish Old Testament, th there was a different order to the books, actually. We put the book of Ruth after the book of Judges, which makes sense because Ruth happens during the time of the Judges, so chronologically it makes sense. But uh, for the Jewish people, chronology really wasn't that big of a deal. They were thinking more in terms of themes. They were thinking more in terms of how does this communicating a certain theology, a certain uh, 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 biblical principles to us. And for them, they placed the book of Ruth after Proverbs. Do you know why? I'd be surprised. I mean, it'd be amazing if you knew why. Uh, I didn't know why until I, you know, did a little more research. But at the end of the book of Proverbs, 
chapter 31, you have a description of the excellent wife, the excellent woman. And for the Jew, Ruth was the example of the excellent woman. She was the quintessential excellent woman, the one in whom all women were to follow as a model. And so they would place it, they placed Ruth right after the book of Proverbs, so just as, just as soon as you were done reading the description, as a young uh, Jewish boy, you're reading the description, you're going, ah, oh, this is the kind of wife that I'm supposed to be looking for, and then you would immediately go into the book of Ruth and you would he- hear an example of what that looked like. Now, why am I talking about some mildly interesting, but maybe I mean, it's really interesting to me, but maybe it's not too interesting to you. Uh, Seemingly, maybe irrelevant fact for this morning. Well, the change in order, it actually obscures something, right? It obscures something that they intended to communicate theologically to us. And so Ruth, in particular, is relevant to us today. Because Ruth is a young widow, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, was an older widow. And I can't prove it. I mean, I can't, I can't prove it. Someday we'll go to heaven and we'll, I'm going to ask Paul this. But I think that when Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, he has in his mind the story of Ruth as he writes these verses. So he writes chapter 5 and he goes, here, he, here then is how we ought to uh, interact with, how we ought to take care of widows in the church. He has two things in mind. He has in mind the book of Ruth and he has in mind the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's bringing those two things together in a practical way. That's, that's my hypothesis. I can't prove it, uh, but I think as we read through the book of Ruth and as you read through these verses, you go, ah, that actually makes a lot of sense. If you don't remember the story, I was reading a little bit of it, but I'll kind of give a a, a recap of it. Ruth, the story of Ruth starts with her father-in-law actually leading his family to leave Israel to go to Moab. There's a drought and there's a famine in Bethlehem uh, where there ought to have been bread, there wasn't, right? And so they leave leave that place, they leave Bethlehem and they go to the the, uh, country of Moab, which was... Um, a no-no for the Old Testament Jew. Uh, You were to trust God and seek him. You were not to go to a different country. And so they, but but as it says at the beginning, it's a time when people did whatever they seemed right in their own eyes. They They did things by their own order. They didn't follow God's order for things. And so they left and they went to Moab and and, and Naomi's two sons, they married uh, two Moabite women. Ruth is one of them. And then lo and behold, Naomi's husband dies, and Naomi's two sons die, and things aren't going very good in Moab, and there's no men left, and so Naomi says, well, I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. I've heard that rain has come, the famine is over, I'm going to go back to my home, and she tries to send her her two daughter-in-laws back to their father's families, but Ruth won't go. Ruth sticks with Naomi, and Ruth says, no, no, I am going to trust in your God, Naomi. 
and I'm going to stick with you. And so in returning, the return of Naomi and Ruth to Israel coincides with the return to trusting in God and doing things, seeking to do things how he ordered, even though their situation is totally desperate, and God redeems it. And throughout the Bible, it's clear that God cares about widows. He cares about widows. You can't read you cannot read the Bible from front to back without realizing the consistent care for widows that God has from the very beginning to the very end. In fact, he cares about vulnerable people, period. It is right and good for us to care as well. But here's the question I want to consider this morning. Does it matter how we go about caring? Does the order matter? Does the way in which we go about it matter? Just as the order of the Old Testament books meant something, just as the order, the way that Naomi's husband went about trying to provide food for them mattered, does the order matter? Does God have an order for this that is not how we see fit, but how he sees fit to do it? Does he have an order that strengthens the church, that strengthens families, and gives strength to vulnerable people while providing a strong witness to the world around us? Does he have an order that we have to stop trusting in ourselves and what we think is best, but have faith in him and how he says that he will come through? Does he have an order? you catch that my implication is that he does have an order. And it's our job to figure out what that is, to seek to do that in faith. And so I want to argue, yes, he does. That care for the vulnerable that comes through households strengthens the vulnerable, it strengthens households, and it strengthens our gospel witness. When we try to circumvent that order, when we try to circumvent that way that God has ordered creation to work, the way that he's ordered us to work, when we try to circumvent that, we actually um, weaken the vulnerable, even when we think or when we intend to strengthen them. We weaken them. And in the process, we actually weaken families, which in the long run weakens and creates more vulnerable people, and we actually weaken our gospel witness when we don't do it the way that God desires, even when we are intending to strengthen our gospel witness, that the order matters. That's the argument I want to make today. And I want to make an argument for uh, the way in which he presents we ought to take care of widows and draw from that some general principles for how we ought to care for vulnerable people as well. And so what we're going to see is Paul instructs the church to give care for widows. In fact, in chapter 5, from the beginning of chapter 5 to the beginning of chapter 6, he's going to talk about uh, a few different um, relational, social relationships within the church, and he's going to give some instructions on the ways in which we have to provide for one another in those relationships. But today we're going to deal with widows in verses 3 through 8. We're going to see that widows need to receive care from a household. Widows need to receive care from a household. That is important and ought to be important to us as a church and as Christians. But we're also going to see in verses 9 through 16 that widows need to give care to a household. You see, it's not enough for widows to just uh, re receive provision. 
But as with all of us, widows need a purpose. They need to give as well as receive. They need to provide in the ways that they can provide and be a part of the households that they're a part of. And we're going to draw some general applications from this at the end. So let's look first at verses 3 through 8. Widows need to receive care from a household. And, and I want to uh, uh, clarify for you, we're going to see two kinds of widows, and we're going to see two kinds of households in this paragraph. Two kinds of widows and two kinds of households. First, there are widows who receive care from God's household. That is, his, their spiritual family. And then we're going to see widows who receive care from their own household, their natural family, okay? So widows who receive care from God's household and widows who receive care from their own household. So who are these widows who should receive care from God's household? Well, the, our passage starts, honor widows who are truly widows or who are widows Indeed, Paul's not redefining what a widow is here. He's distinguishing between widows who no longer have a husband, right, who, which is bad enough, and widows who are left all alone, verse 5. These truly widows are to receive honor from the church. To honor means, uh, the idea of to honor is to give them what they are due. Well, what, is, what does a widow do? Well, this includes respect and reverence, but what we see in the context is that this also includes material provision. Widows deserve their due uh, material provision. God's household should take responsibility for the care of widows among them who have no relatives and no resources. Obviously, that is uh, a situation that would have been uh, looked practically a little bit different in the first century than it does today. Nevertheless, the principle still holds true. God's household should take responsibility for the care of widows among them who have no relatives and no resources. But he also gives some qualifications for these widows. He says, she who is truly a widow has set her hope on God. This is uh, seen positively in her prayer life, but that's just a practical pointer to the deeper truth. She puts her hope in God, and thus Christ's body ought to be the hands and feet of God to her. This idea that she commits herself to prayer is really about the fact that she is um, seeking God in faith to provide for her. She's trusting God for what she needs. There's a kind of widow that disqualifies herself from this kind of support, however. It's the widow who's self-indulgent. She lives for herself and for her own pleasure. That kind of widow should not receive support. That widow, Paul says, is dead even while she lives. It sounds harsh, You know, to our, to our kind of first sentiments, our first kind of modern sentiment, we go, oh, that's kind of harsh, but, but think about this. No doubt that widow would describe herself as being the widow who's truly living it up. She's living for herself, free from my, you know, domestic entanglements. I can do what I want. I'm living it up. Paul says, no, you're dead already, even as you live. That self-indulgent lifestyle is no good. A widow should not receive 
this honor and this care if she is also procuring resources through sinful behavior. You see, a lot of widows would turn to prostitution to support themselves, to sexual morality, to provide provision. And Paul says, no, if, if, if they're doing that, do not support them. They're self-indulgent. Or if the widow is using the provision she receives from the church to pay for or enable this kind of overt sinful conduct, Paul says, no, don't. She's self-indulgent. Now, this isn't to say that a widow must prove herself to not be self-indulgent in order to receive care. You know, there's two, kind of two ways of thinking about this. Well, you need, to, you need to fully prove yourself that you're not self-indulgent, then we'll care for you. But that's not really what Paul's saying. What he's saying is when it's obvious that she's self-indulgent, then, then don't. Do you see what I'm saying? Then refuse to give care when it's obvious to the world around, to everyone in the church, that she is a self-indulgent kind of person. So Paul has in view that the concern of the church as a whole is only for the widows within the church community. Those who are among you, the widows who are among you, those who are Christian widows who are part of your church, you ought to take care of them, church. They have no family to take care of them. Now, an individual Christian may feel led to help, you know, a widow who's their neighbor. Paul's not against that, you know. We're to love our neighbor, just as Galatians 6.10, he says this in Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, God's household should be making sure to take care of God's household. But that doesn't... That doesn't always have to be through making a new ministry or a new program because there's actually a structure that's already in place within the church through which many people can receive care. Did you know that? There's There's a structure that's already hardwired into creation that's already here in the church. We don't have to create a ministry. We don't have to create a program. It's already here. Do you know what it is? It's the family. It's your household my household, our natural households, if, if those households, if we in those households are acting like Christians. And so we have widows who receive care from God's household, but then we also have widows who receive care from their own household. If a widow, it says, in the church has children or grandchildren, verse 4, that is relatives, we see that in verse 8, then these relatives should care for the widow rather than the widows being a burden to the church, verse 16. This act for kids and grandkids of caring for their widowed relatives has two benefits, it says. First, it teaches them how to display godliness and live in a godly way towards others. It is sanctifying to them and it's a witness to other people. But second, it's a return to the parent, verse 4. A return to the parent who, those parents who were sanctified years ago, right? When those kids were small children who needed someone to care for them, they couldn't care for themselves. And parents, you know that when your kids are one and two and four and eight, it's a sanctifying experience, right? You have to really learn to serve someone else. You know, they can't change their own diaper, right? 
They can't feed themselves. You have to do all of those things for you. And so Paul's saying, look, your parents, your grandparents did these things for you years ago. Now you give return to them. And it will have a similar effect on you. It'll be sanctifying to you to care for them. And it says all this is pleasing in God's sight. It's pleasing that we should serve each other and be sanctified. It's pleasing to him that we would recognize the often thankless care and love that our parents gave to us and now would willingly return it. Kids, like I'll say adults, right? All of us, you know, myself included, we uh, often don't remember being five years old or three years old or one year old, right? We don't remember the countless hours and the sleepless nights that our parents went through for our benefit. Our only understanding of that is our own sleepless nights with our kids, right? And then we go, oh, goodness. You have a kid and you go, oh, this is what my parents went through for me. I, I, I thought that they were pretty bad parents, but now I'm going, eh, maybe, maybe they did all right after all this. we would recognize that often thankless care and love and return it to our parents. And and this is the kind of covenantal relational environment that God desires in our families and in our churches. It, It reflects his own relationship with his own people. We might expect here that the section on widows would be done since we've designated who these widows ought to be. Hey, you got widows in your church? Um, If they've got relatives... Uh, the relatives should take care of them. So Christian uh, kids, uh, adult children, you ought to take care of your, your parents and your grandparents. And uh, if there's not anyone, if they, if they don't have anyone to take care of them, uh, there's no Christian children that you can implore and, and, and say, look, this is what God's word tells you to do, do it. Um, but, they, but they have no resource and no relatives. Then church, you need to step in as a church and you need to be that household for them and you need to help take care of them. And we might expect the conversation to be done there. We've talked about widows. We've figured out how to do it, but it's not done. You see, widows need uh, not just provision, but purpose. They need not only to receive, but they actually need to give. And this is something that we miss so often. Something that I've become more aware of is my mom, she moved to Arizona to live uh, near my grandmother uh, after my grandpa passed away. And in that way, she's honoring her mother by doing so in, in the way that this text would, would describe. But yeah, one of the things that's kind of come out of that is that I talk with her as she lives in this retirement community with lots of people, lots of elderly people, is just how many people are lonely and purposeless there. And it's sad that the only ways that they often find purpose is in their golf club or their whatever club, their, their gardening club. And they lack the, de- the depth of purpose that comes with belonging in a family. You can't, you can't replace a family with, with hobbies. I mean, hobbies are, are wonderful. Why? I have hobbies, you have hobbies, we all have hobbies, but you can't replace the depth of meaning of being there and helping your own children and your own grandchildren as they grow up with gardening. Unless that gardening is for that family. Then you might be onto something. All right, Matt. Matt's like, I beg to differ. Gardening is pretty awesome. 
Widows need to give care to a household. In verse 9, a new paragraph starts, a new but related unit of thought introduced by the word let, let, let widows be enrolled. And so we have a new verb here. Instead of honor, it's enrolled in this paragraph. And enrolled is, is, is easy, it's an easy enough word to understand. You put them on a list, in essence. Put them on a list that you, you keep. But what is this list for? And Paul st- seems to assume that everyone just knows what this list is for, but I don't. I wasn't around then, so I, I was trying to dive in and figure out what is he talking about? What is this list for? And a lot of people, uh, I should say some people hold that, that um, we're making a list of certain widows who are permanently to be provided for versus uh, just getting like some sort of temporary relief from the church. But, but I asked the question, why would we need such a list to differentiate permanent from temporary? We, we, at what point did we ever say that, they were, that there was a difference between permanent and temporary? The only way that they would be temporarily under the church's uh, support is until they have family who is willing to support them, right? And he's already covered that in the first paragraph. So it just doesn't satisfy me that that is what uh, he is describing here. In addition, we have some qualifications in these verses that are different than the qualifications in the verses before. They're of a totally different kind. Rather than uh, in verses 3 through 8, rather than the, the qualifications being about uh, material provision, being about how they're using that, uh, whether w- widows are self-indulgent or not, here, what, we talk, what we're talking about with qualifications is how they've lived their life, if they've done good works, if they've taken care of their family, if they've raised children, all of these things. It's a totally different kind of set of qualifications. And so for that reason, I think What we have here is a change in what Paul is talking about in regards to widows, whereas in verses 3 through 8, he's talking about who who gets care from where. Here, he's talking about who gives care to whom. Where do widows give care to? Rather than where do they receive care from? There are two groups that Paul's trying to, to address. Hopefully I'm able to explain this well. First, we have qualified widows are enrolled to give care to God's household. We have two kinds of widows. We have those who are qualified widows, and they're qualified, and they are enrolled to give care to God's household. To be an enrolled widow requires that you meet certain qualifications in verses 9 through 11. They are to be at least 60 years old well beyond childbearing years, unlikely that they're going to be remarried, at least especially in that time, but, but even still unlikely in our time. And most likely, there's a low temptation for sexual sin. And I think we see that that actually really matters in, in the life of a church, in the life of a household, right? They've been a faithful wife and mother. They have a reputation for good works, for having a hospitable home, for caring for other believers. By, that, that, I think, is what he means when he says to wash the, the feet of other believers. Uh, they are especially have cared for those who are afflicted. They've especially cared for vulnerable people, even while they were not vulnerable. And we can learn more about their enrollment from the reasons Uh, that he refuses younger widows to be enrolled. Younger widows shouldn't be enrolled because they end up remarrying. Oh, well now, now that seems confusing, right? Now, uh, remarrying is not sinful or wrong. Paul, in fact, 
actually promotes generally for believers to be married and even promotes widows to get remarried in this very passage. So why would he here say that it's a problem that they would get remarried? For enrolled widows, remarriage, it says, draws them from Christ and to abandoning their former faith, verse 12. What does that mean? Why is that true of them and not for others? Well, I think we begin to get a better uh, idea of it when we understand that the phrase former faith is probably better translated former pledge. It's not their faith in Christ that they're abandoning, but it's their, their trust in a particular way in God in a particular context that, that they have um, you know, made a vow these enrolled widows make a vow to the church and to God to be in this particular position for the rest of their life. Besides that, the younger and unqualified widows, they produce other issues out of their immaturity, out of their lack of, of effort. They have more time on their hands and they actually produce sin. It says first they become idlers. They receive the provision and they're not making a good return. They, they don't have the work ethic. And that tells me that something about these enrolled widows is that they would actually do something. They would serve in a particular way. And it says that they would be going from house to house. So I think there must be something about these widows actually serving different households in the church as they're part of God's household. But, but the second problem that happens with these younger widows is that they don't only just have idle time, but they fill that idle time by being gossips and busybodies. They're going from house to house not to provide care, but to get the latest gossip or to share the latest gossip. And that's not helpful in God's church, right? That's the, that kind of meddling in the business of others in an inappropriate way, not to help them, but actually to hurt the household of God. This is not you know, we don't, we don't go household to household like that so much today, but I imagine it's something like uh, the women who are filling their time, uh, instead of filling their time with caring for their families, they're filling it with sitting on social media, looking at different people's posts, what's going on in their houses, what's going on with their families. We're still searching out on social media what other people are doing, you know, screenshotting, sending texts to other women in the church, perhaps. Can you believe what they said? Can you believe what they bought? Can you believe what they're doing? What is their problem? That is a way in which we are busybodies and gossips in the church today. And it is not glorifying to God. And you ought to fill your time with other things. You ought to fill your time with other things. Turn off the Instagram, turn off the Facebook, Turn off the Twitter, turn off whatever it is that people, I don't even know what the newest social media is. Turn it off and do good works. Care for your family. Care for the church. Care for the afflicted. Fill your time with that. You're, if you're getting on social media not to find out, is that person okay so I can care for them, but to find out what's that person doing so I can criticize them, then Paul's talking about you here. And you should repent and change. So we gather 
from all of this that these women need to be qualified, not just because they make a vow that includes a unique kind of reliance on Christ, but also their vow includes a commitment to serve God's household because they don't have a natural one to serve otherwise. You see, with, when a widow would have been uh, taken care of by her household, uh, as we talked about in verses 3 through 8, there would be an, an expectation that that widow then would provide and help if in the household of their child or their grandchild. They would, in whatever ways they can, that they would actually contribute to the overall household. But here we have widows who don't have a household, and what are they to do? Well, some of them, some of them can be enrolled. And they are to think of God's church, God's household, as their household. And they are to receive care from the church, but they're also to give care to the church as special, uh, a sort of special representatives of the church. They are to be a mother to God's house, even as God's household cares for them as they would care for a mother. There's a fun little uh, series of books that my daughter loves, and so I, she loves them so much I read through them all. And in that uh, series of books, there's a it's, it's a, it's a bunch of books about a bunch of rabbits, okay? So, but it's a lot of fun. Rabbit Warriors, it's pretty cool. Um, but in that uh, community of rabbits, there is an elderly woman, and they call, they call her Mother Saramac, I believe is her name, right? And, and she's, she's, called, she's like the mother of all of the bunnies. She's really old, and she's really wise. She helps all the... She listens, and she gives advice when it's appropriate, and she encourages where it's appropriate, and she, she, she helps in the ways that she can, but she's honored in her position as the mother of the the village of rabbits, and I, this, is, this is the image that I come to my mind. Oh, oh, that we would have these kind of women in our churches and in our communities that are mothers to us, right? All true widows receive some material support from the church, but enrolled widows have committed themselves in the sort of official position to the, in, to the church, in which they permanently receive care and also permanently do work for and on behalf of the church. Now, you might say, Cody, that's, that, that seems kind of like, are you crazy? I have never heard of a church doing this. I've never heard of it. And I have to say, and neither had I. I I'd never see, I've never seen it. I've never seen this actually practically lived out in a church. But, but as I did more research, it used to be a thing that churches did almost universally. And it's sort of fell out of favor. There's some historical reasons. I won't bore you with that, that I think that that happened. Um, and, and there's been times in which different people have tried to kind of say, hey, we need to, we need to actually fulfill what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, and it hasn't happened. But I don't know how this has lived out. I'm just going to be honest. I don't know how you even do this because I've never seen it done, but I think it's here in the text of Scripture, and I think if a church has opportunity, if they have widows that are, that are in these kinds of situations, we ought to try to figure out how to do it. We ought to try to figure it out because God word, God's Word says it. Okay, so what, what then, there's one more group here I want to talk about. What then are younger widows to do? Well, younger widows are to pursue a household in which to give care. Verse 14, Paul's, Paul's commands are really clear. Get married, have kids, manage your household. 
And this is interesting uh, translation here, Paul, uh, that, the, that the ESV has given us here, manage their households, because Paul, um, they translated the phrase back in chapter 3, for elders and deacons, manage your household, um, exactly the same in English, but it's actually different in the uh, Greek text. The phrase is different. For elders and deacons, the idea is to be the head or to have leadership over the household. That's the way that the, 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 the wording is there, but here... These women are to, um, to be sort of household masters, if you will. The burden and joy of men is leadership in the home, and the burden and joy of women is coordinating the domestic affairs, Paul says. To put it in an illustrative way, generally, generally speaking, the greater responsibility of, say, deciding which house to buy and protecting and providing for that house is on the husband. But generally speaking, the greater responsibility for filling that house with kids and filling it with love and filling it with the the aroma of delicious food and all the wonderful things, that is for the wife. And the reason given for why these widows, these younger widows, should fill their time this way is that there wouldn't be opportunity for the adversary. The adversary, it's unclear whether we're talking about Satan or whether we're talking about opponents or enemies to the church. Either way, either way, it wouldn't give them opportunity to look at the church and condemn the church for, for things. And it protects It would protect these younger widows from straying after Satan. Simply, they are less likely to fall into sexual temptation or idle gossip or some other sin if they are taking care of their household. If their time, you know that when you're bored, when you have idle hands, you tend to do things you ought not to do. And so Paul is saying, no, ladies, here's what you can do, young widows. Get married, have children, take care of, be, be diligent in taking care of your household. It will save you from sin. It will prevent sin and disunity in the church. And it will be a positive witness that benefits. It will be a positive witness of the benefits of strong, God-centered families. The, the culture around us says, no, this isn't true. There's not any difference between men and women. There's not any real difference. It's just kind of whatever you want to do, whatever's right for you, that's what you do. God's word says, no, I created men and women a particular way. I've created families to work a particular way, and we ought to operate within those parameters. That's what's best for us. And the world will look at us and go, like, that's crazy. When we say it, they'll say, no, that's, that's even wrong. But when they see it lived out, when they see the strength of godly families, when they see the joy that's in godly families, when they see the fruit of godly families, well, they have to just be blind. They have to be willingly blind, and many are. Paul says those who are actually open to the gospel are going to see that. It's going to be a strong witness to them. So Paul connects all this in verse 16. He says, Christian women with relative, with relative widows should care for them. That's part of what uh, will qualify you to be enrolled as widows later. And then the church can be free, can free its resources up to honor true widows. And when, when the world around us goes, man, your widows are always taken care of. All these other people, all these vulnerable people in other places, they, they don't have anyone to take care of. And the, the, the government's care is not working. It's, it's, it's falling apart. But the people in the church, they're cared for. How do you do it? And you go, well, 
we have husbands be husbands, and we have wives be wives. We take up the responsibility that God's given them, given us, and we care for the people in our households. We trust God's order, not how we want to do it. This is what's so beautiful about the story of Ruth and Naomi. Ruth goes out to glean in the fields from day until evening, right? She is a hardworking woman trying to provide as a widow for her widowed mother-in-law. And she's out there in the fields doing it. In Israel, in Israel one way God provided for the care of the vulnerable is by instructing farmers that once they went through and gleaned once, they wouldn't go back and kind of clean out the field, but they would leave some of the grain out and they wouldn't kind of glean the corners of the field just real particularly, but they'd leave it for those who are vulnerable to come and actually do some work and provide for themselves. And so Ruth is doing that, and she's picking up stocks here, and she's picking up stocks there, right? Ruth goes out to provide for herself and Naomi. She's a widow who is caring for widows. Even as a Moabite, even as a, a foreigner, she, and yet she's an Israelite indeed, is she not? Because she believes in the Lord and she trusts in the Lord and she does what the Lord would have her do. She's not self-indulgent. She trusts in God. She's not an idle gossip. Nor does she use her sexuality as a means for provision. But she goes out and she does the thing. But God leads her to the field of Boaz. See, God is not somewhere far off and absent from widows. He cares for them. Long story short, Boaz, the single man, is in relational position to be what was called a kinsman redeemer, and he would redeem Naomi's husband's property, but with that, he would be also responsible for the care of Naomi and Ruth, and he does so, marrying Ruth, and God redeems both Ruth and Naomi, how? Through the household of Boaz. And in doing so, he extends to the household of David and to Jesus. And Christ creates a new household, his church. We have the opportunity in caring for the vulnerable to bear witness to God's care for us. So what are some applications for us? Well, real quickly, Christians care for those in need in their natural household and spiritual household. The underlying principle can be applied to the way we care for those who are vulnerable, how we care for those uh, in need in and around us. In high school, uh, there was a gal who was part of our youth group and whose parents uh, were no longer willing or able to care for her for a variety of reasons. And so my, my friend's family, who, who was aware of her situation, um, whose oldest son had just left for college, so they had an empty room in their, in their house. They took her in for the last few years of her high school life until she graduated. And there's an example there of this principle and practice towards someone who is vulnerable but is not a widow. If not providing this care means you deny the faith and are worse than an unbeliever, then I would say that the reverse is true, that providing it is A, a witness to Christ, and B, a witness to our own faith in Christ, right? So we ought to 
care for those in need in our natural houses, households, but also those who are in our spiritual households. Second, God's household doesn't eliminate natural households, but rather enhances them. I want you to understand this. God's household doesn't eliminate natural households, but rather enhances them. God, God doesn't say, hey, look, like just, just have the church take care of them with no regard for the, whether they have a natural household first to take care of them. It's important to recognize that being in God's household doesn't negate or blur the distinction between the natural and the spiritual family. Actually, it highlights it because you are in God's household. It causes you to care more for your natural household. Because you are f- you're following the good father who cares for his children. If, you don't, if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is worse than an unbeliever, it says. But, but it doesn't just highlight it, it also enhances it because you are in God's household. You have more than just your relatives to consider and more than just your relatives to lean on. Church, this is the wonder of God's design. Third, how we provide for the vulnerable should produce godliness in both the giver and the receiver. Look, there will still be sin. A method in and of itself is insufficient for sanctifying us. The Word of God and the Spirit of God sanctifies us. However, our method should attempt to promote or should attempt to avoid promoting and producing things like sloth and selfishness and gossip and sexual impurity and self-indulgence. It should, it should actually seek to remove those things from our life. It should move us to look to God and to seek Him in prayer. It should promote love and service to one another. If we do not care that the receiver is brought to greater godliness, then we've fallen short of what God has commanded If our care is only that they have food and clothing, but not that they have more of Christ in that, not that they live out more of Christ in their lives, and we've fallen short of God's concern. The family unit is, the the last application I'd like to to give, the family unit is the foremost structure for ministry in God's household. As I said, we should not sort, short-circuit the duty of a church member to their own household by doing their job for them when God's calling them to do it. Practically, if the enrolled widows cared for all, other, all the other widows instead of believing women, stepping up when appropriate, then it would only take one generation before you have no women qualified to be enrolled widows, right? It undercuts the created goodness of the family unit and ignores the efficiency of the household economy that God has actually woven in to the design of creation. It puts a greater financial and organizational burden on the church. So, so my friend's family when they became aware of this young lady who didn't have a place to go, they could have gone to the church and said, well, well church, why aren't you doing, what are you, what are, what are you doing? Why don't you have a program for kids like this? Even though we'd never had that situation happen before, right? Why don't you have a program for this? Why don't you have a ministry for this? You guys figure this out. But they didn't do any of that. Instead, they opened up their home. They said, actually, we have a room. Come and live with us. We'll take care of you. the reasons we can't avoid 
bypassing the family as the primary structure, I think is at least threefold. First, it removes a Holy Spirit-empowered opportunity for spiritual growth. Second, it ignores the Father's created design for covenantal family relationships. And finally, it obscures Christ's work worked out in and through our lives. I proclaim we value households, both God's household and individual families. That focus on developing healthy family units may lead some to wonder, will you alienate or not care for single parents or kids in broken homes or fatherless homes or the elderly or other vulnerable people? And this question, I think, is born from a right concern, a desire to care for the vulnerable, a concern that God himself has. But we must not be so arrogant or so ignorant to refuse to see that that is a possible rut in a church that a church can have, including us, that we, would, that we would actually alienate or not care for these people who are vulnerable, but we must not avoid that rut by falling into or jumping into the other rut of ignoring God's word and how he says to do it and just doing it the way we think is best. Of undercutting healthy family units, which in the long run actually creates more vulnerable people. If God cares the most for the most vulnerable, if God cares the most for the vulnerable, rather, and if He's sovereign, and if He's ordered the universe, then we can't settle for a solution that's popular in our time or even in the church. We've got to examine it according to God's word as best as we can, as best we can. We're flawed. We must look for biblical principles that will guide us in our care and trust that God's ways are wiser than our own, and care for the vulnerable that comes through households. It strengthens the vulnerable, it strengthens households, and it strengthens our gospel witness in the world. Let's pray.